Welcome to Season 7 of On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus in Chicago. I'm thrilled to say that we're actually approaching a half a million downloads of the show. Thank you. Our thanks to listeners like yourself. We're really excited about it. We're seeing terrific growth. And I hope that uh, everybody will continue enjoying the show as much as, as I continue to enjoy producing it. As always, you can connect with our guests. You can see the creative work and you can listen to all of our shows on our website at onstrategyshowcase.com. The plan a couple of weeks ago, as I actually announced on, I think on LinkedIn and Twitter, was that uh, season seven was going to launch with an episode on the New York Times Truth Campaign. It's a campaign that's been running for a number of years. It's uh, produced by Droga5 and the marketing team at the New York Times. We actually recorded the episode. We had uh, Droga on, we had the New York Times marketing team on, and we were ready to roll. And then on Friday, things changed with the announcement that the Supreme Court here in the United States had overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, which gave women the uh, constitutional right to an abortion here in the U.S. The Times um, then reached out and asked us to postpone the release of the episode. And my opinion is that I think that the most recent version of the campaign may not be reflective of the mood of the nation since last Friday. And therefore, we might need to make some adjustments to that episode going forward. So I hope to return to that episode in a couple of weeks or whenever the timing is right. So all of that uh, leads to today's episode. What's interesting about this is that while Roe v. Wade was overturned by, by the U.S. Supreme Court, based on the opinion of the majority of the court that it's not a stated right in the Constitution, the issue that we're going to be talking about today is very different. The issue we talk about today is about how a stated right in the U.S. Constitution has been interpreted and defended and how that right has enabled the horrors of gun violence to progress in this country without any apparent action to stop it. Today's episode features The Lost Class. It's an award-winning and powerful campaign from Leo Burnett uh, here in Chicago. Last year, 3,044 members of the high school class of 2021 didn't graduate because they were killed by guns across the United States. This campaign set out to make the NRA's influence work against them. And they did a brilliant job of doing that. And many of you may be familiar with the work. If not, you're going to get the backstory into where it all came from and the strategy behind it from uh, Kalen Goldstein, Executive Vice President and Head of Planning for Leo Burnett Chicago, and Sam Shepard, Executive Vice President, Executive Creative Director for Leo Burnett here in our good city. So welcome to Season 7. Dr. John Lott is an economist, educator, and scholar. He has authored several books, including More Guns, Less Crime, often referred to as the Bible of the National Rifle Association. It is my privilege to introduce to you Dr. John Lott. Congratulations. Uh, you all have made a new stage in life. You know, your school is named after uh, James Madison, and he proposed what became the Second Amendment to the Constitution that there's an individual right to people to be able to keep guns for protection. Can you name me one place in the world, any place in the world, that's banned either all guns or all handguns and seen murder rates go down? I can't find a single place like that. 911, what is your emergency? <laughs> I was just working in the Department of Justice. Gun control advocates and Democrats will fight you tooth and nail. Oh, 
They want to go and say we've stopped three and a half million dangerous people. Okay, is anybody injured? Yes, yes, a lot of blood. Please help, please. I look at it as we've stopped three and a half million law-abiding citizens who wanted to get a gun. Are you in the school? Where are you in the school? Well, on the first floor. They were shooting into my classroom. Anyway, congratulations on an amazing accomplishment. You know, I'm sure all of you will have a very bright future ahead. Thank you very much. So we're excited to have this conversation today with some of the folks from Leo Burnett here in Chicago. And given that we're an international show, um, and I'm, uh, as many of you know, I was born and raised in, in Dublin, Ireland. So I, I'm, I hear it a lot from people in other countries when they go, what the hell is going on with the United States? Why does the United States allow these types of gun tragedies that are instigated by individuals using firearms. Why is that allowed to happen? Why can it not be like Australia when they can have a national ban and a national buyback of, of um, firearms, semi-automatic and automatic firearms? And, and the reason and the big distinction, which is not really talked about too much, I think, or not really known um, enough outside of the U.S., is this issue called the Second Amendment. And the uh, the issue of the Second Amendment is debated frequently in this country, depending on where you are uh, ideologically, because the Second Amendment, uh, by most people's opinions, is very poorly written when compared to other amendments. So I want to, you know, the you can you can read this stuff online, of course, but I wanted to um, I wanted to read the Second Amendment. It's pretty short, pretty abrupt. And I think it's, um, it's language and it's uh, the structure of this sentence is what has caused all of the debate. So the Second Amendment reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. When you read it, it sounds strange. And I think it's that strangeness that allows for the interpretation that everybody uh, is struggling with in this country. Depending on which side of the debate you're on, the crux of the debate is whether the amendment protects the right of private individuals to keep and bear arms, or whether it instead protects the collective right that should be exercised only through formal military units. And um, those who argue that it's a collective right point to the well-regulated militia clause in the Second Amendment, and they argue that the right to bear arms should be given only to organized groups like the National Guard, a reserve military force that replaced uh, state militias here in the U.S. after the Civil War. On the other side are people who argue that the Second Amendment gives all citizens, not just militias, not just groups, the right to own guns in order to protect themselves. Now, the National Rifle Association, which we'll talk about in this episode, which was founded in like 1871, and its supporters have been the most visible proponents of this argument and have pursued a vigorous campaign against gun control measures at the local, state, and federal levels. And here in the United States, if you have a federal law, the federal law affects everybody who lives in the country. But if you don't have federal law, the individual 50 states create their own laws. And that's where you get the sort of craziness that we deal with in this country. And Lord knows, in the last number of years, we have more crazy people running uh, for office around this country that have created even worse 
uh, situations. So those who support stricter gun control legislation have argued that limits are necessary on gun ownerships and gun ownership, including uh, who can own them, where they can be carried, and what type of guns should be available for purpose. So we had, uh, my last point here would be that we did have an assault weapons ban in this country. It was enacted in 1994. It actually expired in 2004, and uh, it had a ban on semi-automatic and automatic weapons, I believe. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but kind of assault-style weapons. So we are struggling as a country to deal with this, and there are people on both sides of this argument who feel as passionately uh, about it, and that just creates this unstoppable, almost sort of personal um, uh, personal sense of responsibility to fight for your side. And uh, it's not easy to live with. So for people outside of the U.S., we're um, we're sorry that um, this is all so confusing and so ridiculous to look at because it is ridiculous to live through. And so this is what brought me to this episode today and to the brilliant work that's been done by my two guests today, Sam Shepard and Kaylin Goldstein. And um, thank you both for listening to my rant and also for being on the show today. Welcome. Thanks so much, Fergus. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. So it's um, it's it's uh, it's sad that we have to do creative for um, for this type of an issue, but um, I, I think it it sort of can lean uh, lead towards the recognition that marketing does have the ability to change minds. It does have the ability to create conversation. You know, we've seen it on many cause related topics over the years. And of course, uh, one that comes to mind for me is the truth campaign out of um, Crispin Porter back in the day. And I don't know if you were involved, you were, I know you were at uh, Crispin, Caleb, but were you, did you at all touch that truth campaign work there? Uh, I didn't touch it directly, but it was definitely, uh, you know, influential on, uh, you know, a lot of folks there and stuff that came after that. Yeah, so that, that was that was brilliant work, and that was against the tobacco industry. And, and I think the unfortunate part of the, the truth campaign is I believe that it was funded by the settlement money of the tobacco industry, which is, unfortunately, I don't think we have yet gotten to that stage with, with gun manufacturers. Um, I know there's been some cases that have been won against some gun manufacturers. I believe that you now have the ability to actually sue them, where in the past they were protected by federal law and could not be sued by anybody. So I, I think that this makes the importance of the work that you guys are doing uh, even more uh, um, even more necessary and even more powerful. So we're we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about the last class. But first of all, what is Change the Ref? So Change the Ref um, nonprofit um, is founded in 2018 by. Uh, Manuel and Patricia Oliver, um, after their son, Joaquin Oliver, who is also known as, as, as Guac <laughs> by his friends and family, um, that he was he was murdered um, in the massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Wow. So when that happened in 2018, um, they, they, you know, decided to, that they're going to take action after this, you know, horrible, horrible incident. So they they founded Change the Ref. And the mission that they have as a nonprofit is really, you know, what you're talking about is, you know, at the start of this is how do you raise awareness of this issue, raise awareness of this devastating impact of of gun violence um, and to 
really get it on the radar um, of, of more people and the decision makers in this country and to advocate for common sense gun legislation. So, Sam, for you, what are your kind of uh, what are your your thoughts on or at least when you think back to the first time you heard about this? What are your thoughts about how you felt at that time or what you thought the opportunity might be? Coming up in advertising, I was always such a fan of the truth campaign, uh, specifically just in, in context of uh, going up against such a, a seemingly, you know, insurmountable uh, enemy, right? Big yeah. tobacco. I, I was uh, really interested in the way it wasn't an overnight solve, but they they picked kind of a, a common enemy and 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 just started chipping away. And part of chipping away was was letting people know who the enemy even was, and and then showing people that uh, that they you know they were uh, omnipotent, right? Like they they weren't uh, free from, from, uh, our scrutiny. And so I think just approaching, uh, this, this sector, uh, in the first place, we knew we had to do something totally different and we weren't going to even touch it unless we felt like we could do something that, that actually, uh, made an impact. So Kellen, when you, when you are, when you talk to the family, um, did you then, did that begin a sort of a planning journey of beginning to explore the topic and the issues? I mean, did you guys need to do some further work or did you kind of have a sense that you got to something pretty quickly? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we definitely had to do some some deeper digging and research and really, you know, as you say, it's a complicated issue. There's a, a history there. You know, we, we've all heard of the NRA, but you know, how did they come to be this, this powerful entity that they are? How did the, you know, how did the culture of guns in this country get to where it is? Um, you know, where are the, the sort of the, the openings, the opportunities, where are the, frankly, the vulnerabilities? I think that was a big piece of this with the, with the NRA of like, they're, they're so powerful and they've been that way for so long, but where's the, you know, how can we start to kind of push and 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 perhaps you know um, you know make some inroads there? So Sam, from your point of view, what are your memories of some of those initial briefings and internal conversations? Anything uh, stand out for you? In our point of view, uh, we felt that we were past kind of the general awareness of hey, guns are bad. Like right. we. we we didn't want to just make another emotional ad uh, that left people not knowing what to do at the end, right? I, we felt like we were past a shock and awe and, oh, my God, how bad is that? But at the end of the day, we, we felt like it was just preaching to the choir, right? And, and so that was, was very much front and center of we don't want to make another ad. We want to do something. Um, and, it, and especially... Uh, what is the result of that? What, what do we leave people with a, with a, a finite action of what they can do? And, and especially as a statement of kind of a green light for everyone to say, okay, here is a clear enemy. This is the beginning. How do we start to, to show that, that chink in their armor? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great point because like trying to figure out what you ultimately want to do, because, you know, this is a country of 331 million people who own 400 million guns. And so how do you solve for that, um, you know, Kalen, in terms of like, what were you, what did you want the outcome to be? What sort of a change were you trying to create with this work? 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is the big, that is, that is the big question, right? Because it does, you know, as we said, like it can feel so daunting. And even those numbers that you're just saying of the, you know, there's more guns and there are people in this country, right? Like, what can you do about that? And, and you mentioned at the outset, you know, that other countries have had buyback programs, you know, Australia was able to take off, I think, a third of the guns, get them out of circulation. Um, But that's, you know, that's a big undertaking. Um, You know, when we first started talking to to Manuel and Patricia, Manuel said something that, that really stuck with us is that, you know, the the goal, the ultimate goal is to change the culture of guns in this country. And it's such a kind of big, audacious, bold mission. Um, But the the point is, you know, you don't do that overnight. It doesn't happen right away. There's a lot of, you know, um, kind of deep-seated, you know, views about guns. And so for us, it was like, how can we how can we just start to move things? How can we start to chip away? How can we, you know, take take on the NRA in some fashion and, you know, show that they aren't this, you know, so such an all-powerful force that there's a way to kind of to get at them and to undermine their authority um, and show up their responsibility, right? So I think there's the, the big, the ultimate you know, goal, if you will, of, you know, seeking that kind of big change, change the culture of guns. But then there's also a kind of how can we make a little bit of progress, a little bit of movement and really open up the door for others to to kind of continue to, to, to you know, further this agenda. Yeah, there's a there's a um, there's a podcast that I just listened to the other day that actually was released May 25th of this year, 2022. And it, it's, uh, it's, if you want to look it up, it's for the listener, it's the NRA's secret tapes. And it's a recording of a conversation that the NRA board of directors or their leadership, executive leadership board, it was a conference call they had right after Columbine um, shooting in 1999 at Columbine High School in, in Colorado. And uh, it's how they, it, it was, it's basically the recording that determined how they would respond to that. And it's, it's interesting because the way that they decided to respond to that is how they have responded to every mass shooting since. And it gives you a sense of the sort of this puppet master behind the scenes and what they're doing and what they're influencing. And, and which, which leads to the topic of who, who are you thinking your target was for this campaign? Because I can imagine you weren't thinking of, I'm going to change the mind of a gun rights person. Uh, how, how, were you, how were you imagining your audience member to be for this campaign? We were looking to especially speak to people who have been kind of numbed by, by these stats and these numbers. Right. And, and I, I mentioned before, like kind of the, that helpless feeling, feeling like there's nothing we can do. We also didn't want to join any of the divisive rhetoric. Right. Uh, depending on the two camps, it's literally uh, the government's trying to take our guns. And on the other hand, it's let's get rid of every single gun. And so we, we also wanted to pick like a, a very clear point of view on uh, and what we were we wanted people to take away from this, which was. Uh, passing universal background checks. We picked something that we felt was undeniable on both sides, right? On both sides, uh, we can all agree that we should have basic universal background checks for guns. And 
the the reason and, though, and, that- and, and let's for the listener outside the country let's let's explain what that is so a universal background check is you would think would be the most basic thing which is when you go to buy a, a gun that there is a background check conducted on that individual and that the background check system is given enough time to do a proper background check. So the NRA and other lobbying groups have battled to eliminate the background checks. So in this country, we have different states with different rules and um, different territories with different rules. And you either, you either, they're either implemented but you don't have enough time to do enough of a background check or they don't exist at all. Or, and I'm sure in some states, for, for, forgive me, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but there maybe there are certain states that have really good background checks. But, but that's the problem. It, the most basic common sense thing is what you're talking about here, Sam. Exactly. And, and then you trace that one step further, and it's because of what the NRA fights for is what we call slippery slope, right? They, yes. they have created such rigid lines where any... Uh, action against guns is just the beginning to them to the government taking every single gun. So they've they've created that like such a divisive rhetoric that we wanted to to go at that and also not join it and and not fuel the fire anymore. But but also just bring to light, hey, here's the reason. Here's the actual reason why a simple uh, step in the right direction uh, doesn't get any traction. Anything you'd add to that, Caitlin? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about who, whose mind are we going to, who are we trying to change, right? right there are people right. who are like, you know, they're, they're set in their way, like either they've already, they're on the side of the cause and, you know, so they're, you know, want to preach the converted or people who are like, they're never going to budge. So there is, I think, a really vast swath of people in the middle who, you know, are open to having greater restrictions on gun usage and gun ownership if it will make the world a safer place, if it'll make their kids safer, if it'll make it safer to go into a grocery store. So even Republicans, even Republicans, right? Isn't that we got to underscore that for it's not just this isn't just like all Republicans are against gun reform and, and common sense things. The majority of Republicans, as far as I may remember, are supportive of this, but still in the face of that, the NRA wins over. Yep. For Among representatives who are supposed to represent their constituencies, they're ignoring their constituents in favor of the gun lobby money and support. Yep, exactly. And so that gets to the, you know, how much power the NRA has. So to yeah. your point that, you know, representatives can't adequately fully represent what their own constituents are, are asking for, right? Because to do so would then, you know, uh, put them at risk of getting voted out of office. Yeah, and we're facing similar issues over here when it comes to the um, the freedom of choice for women's issues and abortion. The same thing, majority Americans support it, yet their, their desires and wills are being completely ignored by legislature. And it's not the Supreme Court's um, job to be to you know follow the the whims of the country, but it certainly is of the legislators who support uh, who are supposed to be representing them. So Sam, when you when you you get the briefing, you guys spend some time on it. Where does this brilliant idea of the lost class come from? Was there a moment? That can do you remember when it landed on your desk? Or yeah, in your inbox. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you can't you can't forget something like that. And and uh, I'll I'll start by saying the the effort that we went 
to um, in terms of getting an idea that we were really afraid of in in the right way. Uh, it was it was months of reviews rounds where where we had to be like really brutal on on what that idea was. If we were going to attack attack it, it had to be the idea. And I'll never forget it was it was a junior creative team who had just the the thumbnail image of of you know white graduation chairs arranged like it was Arlington Cemetery and. Uh, just such a powerful visual, uh, a different way to represent uh, a stat or, or data in a way that kind of uh, shakes us out of that numbness, right? And so I just think just from the visual, we knew, oh man, that's that is uh, that's really powerful. Um, and I think this is where this is just a testament to the whole team that we didn't stop there. We knew, you know, it wasn't enough just to have another. Uh, emotion evoking visual that was powerful so so that was the original idea it was it was just sort of symbolic uh imagery it wasn't necessarily what it ultimately became is that what is that what the evolution created was what happened on stage yeah yeah absolutely and and i think i think the the if you view this idea in two parts uh, the first part was, I think, way more in line with the, the type of work that Change the Ref does. It's it's kind of artistic, creative expression uh, and creative confrontation, right? I, and that can show up in so many different ways. But um, I think like where we really took the turn is is with the ambition of, okay, but could you get an active NRA member to be physically placed in front of that same visual? Like um, where where does that come from? Because that's the genius of this whole thing, right? Where was that? Where did it come from? Did, did somebody walk in with that one day, or do you do you remember where it came from? Oh no, it was it was a sentence, you know, below that original the original visual of the chairs. It was just a throwaway sentence, a kind of a question, and 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 then what if we were able to to do this? And and I think ideas that crazy rarely make it off that page, yeah. right? It's just so so kind of you kind of laugh at it. Go, oh, yeah, that would that would be crazy. But I I think then enter. Uh, Ashley Geishaker, who's our head of production at Leo Burnett, I think it's only with someone uh, that's crazy enough to say, no, that's that's not a throwaway thought. Like, what if we were to actually attempt to do that? So let's sort of get everybody level set for the listener. So you, you Sam, you you have this you have this idea, you have this line that's really sort of provocative, suggesting something that could, that could be really provocative and interesting. You take it to production. What happens then? <laughs> uh, a lot of people's heads spun around. Uh, <laughs> <I'm sure>. <laughs> <laughs> I think the first big uh, step for us was was getting a director on board that shared the same the same ambition as us and the same passion for the cause, and that was Brian Buckley. And so the second we had hit him on board, he started to. We were really just kicking around the idea, and, and it was wet clay. And so part of that decision making was okay the person that we try to go after uh we we initially like okay should it be a ted cruz level politician or should it be nra and even the wayne lapierre's of the the nra their radar is up for for this kind of thing of, of being duped or, or um you know uh messed with in a certain way so we we also started to create a short list of of uh prominent nra members that we felt like were still possible Right, uh, just enough under the radar, but yet uh, they they may be more susceptible to to want to speak at an engagement. 
And so that created, yeah, that created a shortlist, which we ended up on, um, you know, on, on two speakers, uh, David King, who was David Keene, who was the former president of the NRA. And he's an, he's an active board member, um, as, as well as, uh, John Lott, who is, um, kind of a, a far right folk hero for, uh, uh, one book that he wrote, which was, uh, uh more guns, less crime. And it's, it's kind of just a, a whole smattering of, of data that he's come up with that, that, uh, the, the NRA uses to kind of plead their case of why guns are important. How do you get David Keene to agree to this and, and, and uh, John Lott? What's, who approaches them and, and what's, the, what's the pitch? Yeah. Uh, and again, step by step, one decision led to the other. So we started with how do you create the, the type of event that these speakers would want to come talk to? And, and what we came up with was we need to create a, a fictional school overnight um and and it, we couldn't we, we couldn't just uh, create any school it had to we had to go all the way so we we came up with the name james madison academy um because james madison was one of the original authors of the second amendment and the nra and the far right often quote and, and look up to to james madison so we knew just by simply ma- naming the school james madison academy um it the, it would start to speak their language um but we we developed an entire website um, to make the school look as as legit as possible. Oh, you're but kidding! Also, That's brilliant. Yeah, but we 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 had to uh, to scrub Google. We had to create new uh, Google ads, st- uh, strategically placed in locations where we knew they would be if they looked up the school, to just make it seem as robust as possible. And the next step was was how do you reach out to them from representatives on behalf of James Madison? And that's where. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's team came in. We we uh, talked talked to Borat's team, who who has experience in this, and and they joined our cause uh, for free. Oh, I had no idea, man. That's brilliant. Tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, it uh, it was it was wild. I think so so much of this project was just uh, uh, passionately sharing the idea, pleading our case, and and leaving room for everyone to do their own set expertise and so when we reached out to that team uh just the power of the original idea they were on board and they did whatever it took so they uh they started just doing their own thing starting to to reach out with their own stationery and letterhead and and kind of go undercover um and at the same time we also got uh you know borat's lawyer uh you know russell smith who's the only reason borat has never been successfully sued he got on board and and really helped out just making sure everything was ironclad and, and that gave us some relief heading into to this idea. So Sam, um, before we drop the audio in, can you explain specifically what the idea is? Can you describe what people uh, are going to be listening to and, and what, uh, what the film is about? Yeah. Uh, so the, the film is, is really about, uh, at, at the first half it's, it's these chairs, right? So we, we placed 3,044 chairs, uh, in a big empty parking lot in, in Las Vegas. And each one of those chairs represents, uh, you know, a kid that lost his life to gun violence. And we calculated that, that data with, with, uh, CDC data over the years and just calculating year by year, uh, how many kids were killed that would have graduated in, in 2021. And, and we came up with the number 3,044. So we, we arranged those chairs to look like almost, you know, like a, like a cemetery type vibe, but the, the idea shifts when you start to realize that this this NRA speaker 
is giving a speech to these chairs and and what they're saying um you know we able we were able to get them to to give a speech that was very much pro gun rights so i think the the contradiction um between what they're saying and who they're saying it in front of uh in my opinion just creates a very kind of startling contrast and and the audio over the top was another layer uh we were able to get uh you know, real 911 recordings from the Parkland shooting. Um, so just trying to layer in as much uh, just, um, you know, uh, texture to this and, and really give it a life of its own. Now, the the NRA, the NRA individual who's making the speech, number one, knows that the seats are empty, and number two, uh, um, is is actually making that speech in that physics. It's not, there's no, there's no computer... You know, there's no special CG stuff here. He's on stage. He's making his speech. Um, has he written it himself? And who does he think he's presenting to? It's it, it, because yeah. he, he's not. He doesn't. It, what's the context of the empty seats, as far as he's concerned? Exactly, and that was that was uh, kind of the aha moment for us. Is is how were we going to get him to do this? And and the the idea that Brian Buckley had was. Oh, we'll get them to do it at a rehearsal a day before the, the actual graduation. Is I love to go. it. So, That's brilliant. Yes, yeah, so we we forced him to really write out his speech, and we wanted him to practice, and we made him run through it three or four times. And just so happened that this speech was very much talking about hopes and dreams in the future, uh, as well as he's talking about the rights of the Second Amendment. David Keene was the two-time president of the National Rifle Association. He continues to be a staunch defender of your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Therefore, it is my privilege to introduce to you David Keene. Let me begin by telling you what an honor it is to be here to help celebrate your graduation. Picture for a minute the young James Madison, for whom this school is named. This year you focused on one of the most important of Madison's amendments, the Second Amendment. There are some who continue to fight to gut the Second Amendment. But I'd be willing to bet that many of you will be among those who stand up and prevent them from succeeding. Now I want to emergency. Defending it is a challenge and a duty that Americans like you. Who understand what has made the country the envy of the world must accept as their own. Okay, is anybody injured? Yes, yes, a lot of blood, please help, please. An overwhelming majority of you will go on to college, while others may decide their dream dictates a different route to success. School, school. <laughs> okay, do you know how many people are injured? So my advice to you is simple enough. Follow your dream and make it a reality. My son is in Stillman Douglas. My daughter just texted me from school. She's at Stillman Douglas. And never for a minute doubt that you can achieve that dream. Thank you. Kaylin, what happens? Once this gets on air, how, how do you guys roll it out? And what's the reaction that you get? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a big piece of this too was, you know, we had to be careful not to get anything out ahead of time, right? That the secrecy 
um, you know, was so paramount and we couldn't have any leaks. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was how do you kind of get a news organization to pick up the story and run with it? Um, and there but, was but some- one thing, one thing, I'm sorry to interrupt you, excuse me, but I think I've, I forgot to mention the importance of this. If, it, if, if the rehearsal was the day before, how do you keep it secret when David Keene now knows that there actually isn't an event? Yeah, I could I could answer that. We just we simply told them uh, it was right in the middle of of kind of the biggest COVID uptick. So we told them, hey, like there's been some some like security issues, things with that, and sorry, we're gonna have to cancel. And and part of the reason we chose Vegas because we knew they would have fun, they would have fun gambling, and have, would have other things to do. So I don't I don't think they minded too much. Okay, thanks, Sam. Sorry, Kendall, for interrupting you there. Uh, the rollout. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um... So yeah, no, I mean, I think there was the yeah. So how do we how do we get it out there? Um, and there were some news organizations that didn't want to go with the story. I think then this gets to maybe the, the power of the NRA. Like it felt a little too dangerous to 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 um, you know put this out there. So um, so BuzzFeed was the um, news organization that we went with, and then immediately we saw a ton of pickup with from other. Um, news organizations and, um, you know, from all around the world. The big backdrop to that, too, is there's plenty of coverage of, um, you know, devastating impact of gun violence when a mass shooting occurs, right? Like, that's the the sort of terrible irony is like, yes, you know, and we're coming out of a period where we've seen this, you know, you know, horrible events. And then you you see it all over the place. What this was designed to do is to really get that kind of attention and coverage without having to have a terrible tragedy take place. And so that was when you, you know, when you look at um, the, the, you know, impressions and the, you know, discuss, you know, sharing on social, it's like, okay, if we can create that kind of impact without anyone having to be killed, then, you know, that, that feels like we're making some progress. So how did how did the NRA ultimately respond to this, and how did David Keene respond to it? Um, not, not that not that you care, but it was, I'm sure <laughs> it was just kind of joyous to uh, to to wait and hear what what was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Like there was, you know, um, uh, John Lott. I think he, you know, talked to BuzzFeed and said, hey, you know, I didn't know what this was about. And a little bit of, you know, I was duped. There was not a ton of reaction, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, And I think it gets to, you know, Fergus, what you talked about in terms of the kind of NRA playbook, Um, you know, when there's a terrible tragedy that happens, you know, what, what do they say? How do they get the news cycle to move on? Um, How do they not focus attention on the consequences of, of, you know, of gun violence um, and sort of stay on message beyond gun rights? So same thing here. You know, this puts them in a bad light. um, And I think they just wanted new cycle to move on. A quick shout out, just like when we were going live with this, we we had no money, right, for a a big uh, paid PR push. But we had again, another just like team of experts and, and Tusk strategies was kind of the, the PR experts and they helped us secure these, these exclusives with Buzzfeed and, and convinced different news outlets to take the risk and, and cover it. And so uh, when that happened, we, we had so much ambition of what we could have done to launch this. And those ideas ranged from, you know, do we edit versions of their speech 
uh, for them to push it out on their own channels, right? For for David Keene and for John Lott to to start sharing this before they even knew what it was about. Um, so they're the ones spreading this own campaign. Or uh, we even thought of, you know, could we have a live Zoom with them where we reveal, you know, at the same time as they find out what the reaction was. But we ultimately we decided just to, to launch as big as we possibly could and, and let them find out at the same time as the rest of the world. And, and again, that CTA at the end of, of, of sign our petition for universal background checks, um, you know, it was, it was kind of an undeniable call to action. So and um, in retrospect, Kalen, was, was that call to action the right call to action um, given the number of choices you could have had? Because obviously we don't have universal background checks in this country and it's, it's, it's unlikely uh, to happen anytime soon. I mean, so when you come to, when you come at, when you look at KPIs, do you, do you look at that as being what you feel best about? Or in other words, the, the call to action responses for universal background checks or are there other ones that you look at to go, okay, we really did make a difference in a way that we wanted to. Yeah. To me, the, I think it is important to have a, um, an action, you know, call to action where people can feel like, okay, here's something I can do, right? I'm going to sign a petition. I'm going to be on record of saying we need to change the gun laws in this country or we need to enforce the laws that we have. Uh, you know, that's something that that can happen. Like this is a concrete change that we can make. And I think we wanted people to be able to add their, their name to that, that effort um, in terms of, you know, what's the KPI I'm most proud of or I think is most important, I, I do think it is the, the impressions. I think it is about the coverage that this got, um, you know, the 1.4 billion impressions. I think, you know, again, having this issue, having this story, getting that kind of coverage in absence of, you know, terrible tragedy, that to me is the you know, the, the, the really the goal here. It's uh, Kaylin Goldstein, EVP, head of planning, Leo Burnett in Chicago, and Sam Shepard, EV, EVP, executive creative director at Leo Burnett here in Chicago. Thanks for having Leo Burnett Chicago on. Uh, we've had Leo Burnett in London on uh, for McDonald's. We had a great uh, conversation there too. And I hope this will lead to more uh, Leo Burnett on the show. We're glad and thankful for both of you guys. Great work. Um, hope it continues to make impacts as we go forward. And thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Fergus. Really good to talk to you. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.